If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. If you would go ahead and turn to Jeremiah 31. I'm going to be reading several other passages of Scripture this morning, but uh, that's going to be kind of the heart of our focus this morning. I, um, Mr. Jared, I'm sorry, excuse me, would you pass that um, manuscript to Miss Olivia? Before we go there, I want to actually read just a portion of Scripture to you that's found in Romans 2. Paul writes in light of the sinfulness of mankind and trying to indict all of mankind in this passage. And in the midst of that, uh, some of those who he he addresses uh, are what we might call the moral man. And and in that he says, uh, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or, and here's the part I want you to listen, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Those are the words of Paul to the early church and In essence, it's the word of God to his people throughout all times, as we will see this morning, that God is a merciful God. He's a loving God. He's a kind God. He's he's much more than we can even begin to sit here and describe. But we can be grateful this morning that he is a a patient and a long-suffering God. Uh, The very God that he revealed himself to be in in Exodus chapter 3 with Moses, when Moses said, Who shall I tell you sent me he began to unveil himself to Moses and later Moses tells God he wants to you know he wants to see him you know and God passes by and he declares his name and he says I the Lord the Lord am long-suffering patient and and kind and merciful and 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 that is the unveiling of our God and so this morning as we look to this next section in our uh, series the kingdom of God That very issue, God's patience, God's kindness, and most notably this morning, God's faithfulness becomes uh, very evident. So over the past five weeks, we've been considering this topic, the kingdom of God. And in order for us to, 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 or in order to prepare you this morning for where we're going to go, because I've got to cover 800 years uh, of of history. Y'all think I can do that in... A few minutes? We'll see. But in order to prepare you for the particular revelation of the kingdom of God during the time of the prophets, I I want to take us back for a few moments uh, and kind of review up to where we have, or through where we have come up to this point of how God's kingdom has been revealed throughout the scriptures as we've been looking at that in different portions of the scripture because God's kingdom has been being revealed and being revealed from the very beginning and and hopefully, if you haven't been able to be, be with us each week, this will also help you to kind of put you in the context of where we are. Now, I provided you uh, during the course of this series with a succinct definition of the kingdom of God that, that I believe, it's not my definition, but I believe that it is probably the most consistent definition that we can find throughout Scripture. 
As we look at that concept of the kingdom of God, we see that same definition fitting in every epic, you might call it, of scripture from beginning even up to this very day. And that definition is this. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place enjoying God's rule and blessing. Now, hopefully some of you that's ringing your head by now because we repeated that. Now, if you were here last week, Ryan added another element to that as he helped us to see in the the course of, of the kingdom of Israel that God attached to this concept the element of a king. And so we might amend our definition now to read something like this. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place enjoying God's rule and blessing as it is mediated through God's king. Now, the paradigm, or the, the, the illustration might, maybe, the paradigm that of God's kingdom was first revealed to us as we saw in creation itself. Uh, as we looked at what God was doing in creation, we found that God prepared a place, that is, Eden, for his people, Adam and Eve. And this place was filled with every kind of possible provision for God's people. And so long as they lived in fellowship with God, enjoying his rule and blessing, they would live, theoretically, the ideal life as God intended for his creation. But instead of enjoying God's rule and blessing, Adam and Eve chose to seek uh, to, to be their own rule makers by, as we saw, doubting the word of God. They questioned it when they were tempted to do so by the serpent. Now this act we know as, or sometimes called the, the original sin, or most often I think referred to as the fall which I think is, is rightly applied when we're speaking of the kingdom. It was the fall of this kingdom. But it, it calls, this sin calls God's original kingdom, the, the paradigm of that kingdom, to collapse. And by means of their sin, Adam and Eve were no longer living as God's people. And they were then exiled from God's place where they faced God's judgment rather than his blessing as he desired and intended for them to do so. And then we saw that from Genesis 3 to chapter 11 was just a further unpacking of the effects of sin on the collapse of the kingdom. And ultimately how that spread to all of mankind. And hopefully this is not news to you. This is the story we've heard over and over. But God, however, did not intend for his kingdom to remain in ruins. It was as though God was wringing his hands going, oh no, what do I do now? God communicated then, we saw, the the reestablishing of his kingdom through a promise, or what we sometimes call a covenant, that he made with a man by the name of Abraham. Now, Abraham was promised by God that, that God would make his name great, and that through him, through Abraham's seed, he would create a people for himself and lead them to a place which he prepared for them, and that is Canaan. Or the promised land. We are given a glimpse into the promise or this particular promise that God made through Abraham as we continue to read the story of Genesis and even beyond. Because throughout the book of Genesis we see how God created this people from Abraham's own descendants. And then as we enter into the Exodus, as we have already looked at, that that small group of people that numbered 70 at the end of Genesis 
suddenly became an entire nation too numerous to count. A fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham that I will make your descendants to be as numerous as the stars in the heavens and the sands of the sea. And we see in Exodus how God takes that entire nation of people that he has created through the promise made to Abram and he delivers them out of bondage in order to lead them to the land that he had prepared and promised to them. Now on their way to that land, they had a short stop off. Well, it actually turned into a long stop off, but originally it was a short stop along the way. And at that stop, God gave his people the law. The law that was written on tablets of stone. And he did this in order to mediate his rule over them so that they would in return be able to enjoy God's blessing. Now, in spite of their continual rebellion that we continue to read about throughout the rest of the first five books of the Bible, which caused a a 40 year delay. These people, God's people found themselves at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. They found themselves on the brink of the promised land. The very land which God had specifically prepared for them, his people. And then, as we turn the page from Deuteronomy into Joshua, from Joshua through Kings, we find that God reveals to us how his people possess the land of promise. And and how they established a king through which God's blessing would flow. Now, first of all, we read about... Kind of the chaotic process, how God, God's people demanded a king of their own choosing. And that kind of ended in a kind of a catastrophe. As they wanted Saul, the, the one who they thought would be good for them. But in God's patience and in his kindness, he then provided the king of his choosing, King David. And God then renewed with David, we read about this in Second Samuel, or excuse me, First Samuel 7. He renewed the very same promise which he had made to Abraham with David. Now, in different terminology, but it was the very same thing. God promised that David's descendant would sit on the throne and his kingdom would be established forever. And so we find as we read through that, the, the details of the story of, of the life of Israel with David, that under David, God, or the kingdom of Israel, that is God's people, was was firmly established. But then, under David's son, Solomon, we read and find that God's people found themselves in God's place, enjoying His rule and His blessing, mediated by means of God's King. And we talked about that last week as Ryan shared that with us as as the kingdom illustrated. It was a picture for us and for all who were involved even at the time of, of this kingdom that God had ordained to establish. But if we continue reading, we find that the kingdom of Israel under Solomon did not, as you would think, last forever. Nor did Solomon sit on the throne forever. We all know that. Solomon died and the kingdom divided. And then the long list that we continue to read about throughout the books of Kings following Solomon's death This long list of king after king after king in in both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah who who were the result of the division of the kingdom. These kings were were wicked often. Again and again we would read stories of catastrophic endings. How these kings would lead the people astray. But 
In spite of that, we find that God's kingdom was not utterly destroyed. God had purpose from the beginning to establish his kingdom forever. And as we've just sung a few moments ago, what God promises, he is faithful to do. He has always been and he will always be. So, now we find ourselves in in the period, at least in, in, in the portion of the Bible that we, we understand, uh, most notably, it speaks about the, the, the exile of Israel and, and their return. As we read the rest of the books, often referred to as the prophets, both the major prophets and the minor prophets, as we often call them. Um, not based on their significance, but based on the length of their books. God's people, post-Solomon, were struggling to survive. The kingdom was in disarray. And the people were continually rebellious to God's way, again and again. Nothing new. They were rampantly following after other gods and dishonoring the God of Israel, the very God who had called them to himself to establish them upon this earth. To be, might we be reminded, a light to the nations. God's judgment as a result would fall upon them. Now, God's judgment, as we read about it, can seem very harsh. I mean, you've read the stories, right? I mean, how God sends wicked, very wicked nations against his own people as, as a means of his judgment against their sin. But we're reminded time and time again, even in the midst of, of the ugliness of the fallout of that, that God's judgment was not punitive. It was not to get back at his people. It was not to... Just say, ha, you know, I'm still God. But it was for the purpose of turning the hearts of his people back to him. Again, revealing the very, the very nature of our great God and his long-suffering, his patience, his kindness, his mercy, and his grace. But as we continue to read, and we'll see briefly this morning, that while God continued in his patience and his mercy the problem that arises is that we've seen it time and time again haven't we i mean by the time you get to the book of jeremiah i mean if you haven't picked up on the cycle then you're reading with your eyes closed i guess we've seen it over and over again that though god is merciful his people continue to follow their own ways to to seek to make their own rules to determine for themselves how things are supposed to be just like adam and eve first did in Eden. So the question that it raises is how would this time be any different? What could possibly break this cycle? This is the situation that that arises as we read through the great story of Scripture. Now, while up to this point, as we've worked through the Bible fairly chronologically... Uh, While up to this point, everything that we've talked about has fit pretty logically in a a chronological order. The creation, the fall, the creation of God's people from Abraham on, the exodus, on up into the promised land, to the established kingdom of Israel. It's all been somewhat one after another. Now, when we reach this particular epic of the prophets, it also does fit largely in that chronology, but... We need to be reminded that it also supersedes that chronology. It's not bound by that chronology because 
while our Bibles reserve the books of the prophets until after the fall of both uh, northern and southern, the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, at least us reading about them, uh, the period of God's prophets goes all the way back to the time of Moses. Now, you may be very aware of that, you may not. But while we don't often think of Moses that way, Moses was God's prophet. In fact, God referred to him as such, and Moses himself referred to him himself that way. And, and, and once he declared to the people that one day God would raise up a prophet like me, and he would lead you. And from that time on, from the time that Moses spoke those words and said, God's going to raise up a prophet like me, God's people began to anticipate this prophet like Moses. And every prophet that arose throughout Israel, there was always that question in the back of their minds. Is this? No. Maybe this? No. But it seems like each prophet that came along fell short of their expectations. Elijah likely came the closest in the eyes of God's people of possibly being that prophet that they were waiting on, but yet not quite. Now, you may not have... Or you, I guess I should say you may have better memory than me. But almost two years ago, we started studying or working through the Gospel of John. Now, I'm sure you remember those messages in detail. Uh, but just in case you don't, let me refresh you. In the very beginning of the Gospel of John, we are introduced to the character or the person of John the Baptist. And if you remember, when he came on the scene preaching repentance... The religious leaders sent some others to question John and say, Who are you? What's going on? What's this all about? And their questions came this way. Are you the prophet? Well, no, I'm not. Well, then, are you Elijah? And essentially, the, the, the question goes down to our, the Messiah. And John's was denial of all three of those. But the, the basis of that first question was Moses' statement. That one day God would raise a prophet like me. And, and this reveals both to, to us both in, in John, both that God's people had been anticipating this coming prophet. But also that he had not yet arrived, at least as far as they knew at that time. Their basis of asking him about Elijah, just to add to that, was the end of the book of Malachi. It says that he will send Elijah to you. And so they were expecting a, an Elijah resurrection, but John said, I'm not him. Although we find out later, John just didn't know because Jesus said, yeah, John the Baptist was the Elijah to come. He came in the power and spirit of Elijah. So this prophet they were looking for is, is the establishment of God's period of prophets to his people, beginning with Moses onward. God began to appoint men. He called men. To serve as his mouthpiece uh, to his people in order to exhort them and to warn them and encourage them and to, to in, in a sense, mediate, in a way, his rule and blessing. It was just another means by which God sought to, to do this very thing, to rule over his people in addition to appointing a king. Now, by means of both God's king and God's prophet... God would establish his rule over his people so that they in return might continually enjoy his blessing as they would in return live for his glory. But 
Again, as the Bible illustrates to us over and over again, God's people kept failing miserably. We're almost to our text. After Solomon's death, as I already mentioned, both the kingdoms of Israel, that is the northern kingdom, and the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, experienced rampant wickedness under the leadership of their kings. Now, sure, we read that there was a, a king here and there that stepped in and tried to reform. Reform. Take note of that word, to reform. But it didn't put much of a dent in the course of the hearts of God's people. During that time, God appointed numerous prophets like Elijah and Elisha to, to call out to God's people and warn them and call them to repentance in order that they might experience blessing rather than judgment. But God was continually patient in the midst of it and merciful with his people. Yet they continued to, to do what sinners do, right? What do sinners do best? We sin. And they've done that ever since the fall. They rebelled. So finally God responded just as he had warned them that he would. Dating all the way back to Moses' speech on the banks of the Jordan River before they crossed over into the promised land. Moses told them in detail, if they did not live for God's glory, they would face his judgment. They would be exiled from the land. And it's exactly what happened. If they chose to ignore God's rule, they would cease to be God's people and they would be exiled from God's place and they would suffer his judgment just as Adam and Eve had done. Now in Jeremiah 4, Jeremiah records this situation. Looking on the judgment of God upon his people and listen to the words of Jeremiah as he is looking back on God's judgment of his people Taking them into exile. And note the words. I looked on the land. And behold it was without form and void. And to the heavens and they had no light. I looked on the mountains and behold they were quaking. And all the hills moved to and fro. I looked and behold there was no man. And all the birds of the air had fled. I looked and behold the fruitful land was a desert. And all its cities were laid waste in ruins before the Lord. Before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. For this, the land shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. Now, I don't know if you caught that. The language that Jeremiah uses there should be readily recognized. He uses the very same terminology that we've read not so long ago. And, and he does so for the purpose of casting an a image, a picture in our minds of the very world that God created before the original creation. Did you hear that? It was without form and void. It was a, a desert wasteland. It, the skies were dark. The birds fled. So basically what he's saying in a in a imagery kind of way is he's saying that it's it's just like God it's gone back to the way things were before God first prepared this land for his unique creation. And see God's kingdom at this point in time as Jeremiah is speaking was not yet realized. But understand this it was not a fluke. 
It was not a mistake. It wasn't as though God was trying his hardest and failed. You, you must not get that picture in your mind that it just, God tries and these people are, are, are just foolish and they keep messing up and, oh my goodness, what am I going to do about these foolish people? That we must not get the picture that's what God did. God is perfectly working out his plans through history and through the lives of his people and even the lives of the nations, even at this point. The kingdom of Israel under Solomon was but a shadow, uh, an illustration of God's kingdom to come. It was not the goal. It was to, to show us in, in ways that his people, physical, uh, earthbound people, could begin to grasp the reality of what God's kingdom would be like. And it is this very kingdom that the latter prophets take up as the subject of their messages. And Jeremiah merely sets the stage there in that passage I just read by announcing the fall of Israel in terms of a pre-creation. It serves to prepare God's people then and now, that is you and I, for God's ultimate purpose to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham. To once and for all establish his own people in his place so that they would, in fact, enjoy his rule and blessing, not for a season, but forever. Now, it's for this reason that Jeremiah, later, in chapter 31, speaks of something called a new covenant. You see, God would, in fact, establish a new people from out of every nation on earth, in a new place, enjoying his rule and blessing, mediated through a new king. So look with me now, and we'll read this passage together, and note a few things about it. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. Who stirs up the sea so that it, its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the, the seed of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all. The seed of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill Garib and shall then turn to Goa, the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kedron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown any more forever. So, Jeremiah speaks of a new covenant. So the prophets begin this 
this vein of, of speaking from this message or this revelation that God gives them. Jeremiah is not the only one. This is just one of the clearer passages that we see. This new covenant. Now, that, that terminology in our minds can be a little bit confusing because this covenant that Jeremiah speaks of is not brand new. It's not as though God just got cast aside his, his plan A and said, I'm going to go with plan B. No. Uh, This covenant was, in fact, the very same covenant that God made in the beginning with Abraham. It it is, however, as we read in chapter 31, it is different than what Israel had had come to understand under the covenant that was made at Sinai. You follow me? When they were led out of Egypt, God made a covenant there at Sinai. And it was that covenant that he said, if you are careful to obey all these rules, then... You'll be blessed, but if you don't, you'll face judgment. Uh, This covenant, this new covenant, would not be like that covenant. Notice the distinct differences. I'm just going to give you three, briefly. The covenant at Sinai was written on tablets of stone as a continual reminder to God's people of his rule. They were there for the people to see and read about. The new covenant, however, would be written on the inside of Upon the heart. This covenant would not require the continual outward objective reminder of God's character and his law. Instead, it would become the passionate pursuit of God's people from the heart. Do you hear in that what's happening? You see, we take our definition that I've been giving you. God's people in God's place enjoying God's rule and blessing. And what God is dealing with in this new covenant is he's saying... That I am pursuing a people for myself. And, and so in a very real sense, not taking new is in something never thought of before, but rather we could take the word renewed. Uh, God is saying, I am calling myself a new people. The second distinction is that the covenant of Sinai was given to the entire nation of Israel as a means for them to be a unique people and declare the one true God to the nations. That was the point. The nation of Israel included many who, by the way, didn't follow God. We read about them often. There were some within that nation who who truly sought after God and and, and want to, to, to magnify His glory. We read about them as well. But there were many who were not within that singular nation called God's people. Those that were true followers of God, as we might term it, were referred to time and time again in the Old Testament as the remnant. Now the new covenant, on the other hand, would ensure that everyone in that covenant, all, would know God. You see the distinction? Covenant with the nation Israel, some believe, some don't. In the new covenant, everyone in that covenant would know God without exception. Everyone in this new covenant would be true followers of God and and would display His glory to the nations, again, with no exception. They would no longer be a single entity or a single nation with some who followed God, but instead they would be true followers from among every nation. The third distinction, the covenant at Sinai was conditional. It required the the self-willed obedience of the people in order to experience God's blessing. Might I remind you, I am not saying 
that that was their means of salvation. The covenant given to the people at Sinai was post-deliverance. You follow me? It was given to God's people after God delivered them from bondage. It was not their means of salvation, but it was a conditional covenant by which God's blessings would be mediated to his people. Disobedience, however, would bring down the curse of the law upon them. The new covenant that Jeremiah introduces to us, like the covenant made with Abraham, was unconditional. There was no if involved. God himself would guarantee it. It was not based on works, or it is not based on works, but upon God alone. Now, Ezekiel spoke of this very same covenant in Ezekiel 36. Let me read that passage to you as well. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when you, when through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. God's prophets were proclaiming a work of God that was yet to come. A work that, that would be anticipated for many years yet to come, but that would surely come. Why? Because God had promised it. And when God promises something, He's always what? Faithful. God would guarantee a people for Himself from out of every nation, people, tribe, and language. And God's people would one day no longer occupy one single tract of land in in the midst of the entire creation of God, but rather it would span the entire globe. God guaranteed that he would call out a new race of humanity, a new nation. Not one like the old, one that's pointed to by the old, but a nation that's not defined by geographical boundaries or ethnicity It is defined by one thing, and that is knowing the Lord. A nation of believers, and that would be his new people. But God also declares to us through the prophets that he would provide a new place for his people. See, in the original creation, God's place was Eden. In the established kingdom of Israel, God's place was Canaan, the promised land. But there, these, these two were were but paradigms for what was yet to come. God's purpose for his people far exceeded a small portion of his created world. In fact, the book of Hebrews helps us to see this just very clearly as 
chapter 11 begins to teach us about the heroes of faith from the Old Testament. And then the writer of Hebrew, Hebrews states this. He says, these all died in faith. Speaking of all those heroes of faith like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and so forth and so on. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. If you take time to read the book of Ezekiel, which will take you a while if you do. Beginning in chapter 40, the prophet Ezekiel begins to describe for us what's been termed the latter day temple. Now, you don't have to read very far into that description. It's a very weighty read. It's a difficult read. But you don't have to read, read very far or even understand a whole lot before you will discover that this temple that Ezekiel begins to, to, to describe or talk about it sounds a whole lot more like a garden than it does a temple. In fact, it looks a whole lot like the Garden of Eden than any previous temple or any even after. There are rivers in this temple that never run dry and there are trees planted by the river that issue forth their fruit and every kind of fruit and much more. In fact, Ezekiel's temple described in chapters 40 and following sound a whole lot like what we read about in Revelation 21 and 22, which, again, in return, sounds a whole lot like Eden than even the glorious temple that Solomon built. And once more, it, it is clear that the post-exilic temple that was rebuilt after Solomon's was destroyed did not satisfy Ezekiel's description. In fact, that temple was much less glorious than the previous, so much so that when you read about it in the Scripture, when they laid the foundation of that temple, it says the young men rejoiced, but the old men wept. And the reason they wept is because they knew the promises of God, they knew what had been there before, and they knew there's no way this could be what they were waiting for. And in fact, it wasn't. It was not the fulfillment of the promise. And while we will hear more about the unpacking of that idea in the next couple of weeks, um, we need to venture there for just a moment before we finish today. Because if this latter-day temple that Ezekiel speaks of wasn't the one rebuilt after it returned from exile, which, in fact, was destroyed ultimately in AD 70, then what was it? Or I might ask the question more rightly, I think, who was it? And we turn to the New Testament and we read about this person named Jesus. He came on the scene. He began a public ministry. And at the very beginning of his public ministry, we read about in John chapter 2, Jesus is standing outside Herod's temple, which had been under construction for 40-some years, more than four decades. And, and what did Jesus say? He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. What? And they responded, how, how in the world can he do this? Because this thing, 42 years, this thing's been under construction. How is this single man going to raise the temple up in three days? Just in case we miss the point, John helps us out there. The writer of the gospel helps us understand because he goes on to say, Jesus was speaking of his body. 
So what we find very quickly, not even reading very far into John's gospel, is that Jesus himself is the very fulfillment of the latter-day temple. As you've heard the statement, all the promises of the Old Testament have their yes in Christ. That's what it means. It means that in Christ it was all fulfilled, and we look no further than Jesus for it. Because what is the temple? What, what, what was the temple in the Old Testament? From the time it was a tabernacle, it was moving to the time it was built. It was the place where God dwelt with his people. And who is Jesus? And you shall call his name? Emmanuel, which means God with us. And again, in case we miss that, John helps us in chapter 1. He says, in him all. We behold the glory of, of God in him. And, and I think Paul states for us, I can't even remember exactly, but in uh, Colossians, I think in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. In Christ, the presence of God is most fully revealed and most fully present with his people. But then we can go beyond that because numerous places in the New Testament stretch that idea even further. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul addresses the church in Corinth and he says this to them. Do you, plural, all of them, do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So Jesus, by his own admission, is the fulfillment of this latter-day temple, but also... All those who are attached to him, his body, the church. Well, one more clue to this latter-day temple, before we move beyond it and finish, is found in Revelation, where the temple that is spoken of there is pictured for us or described to us in a variety of terms. One of those terms is the Bride of Christ or the Holy City Jerusalem. Which, by the way, we're given the measurement of that city, are we not? Anybody remember the measurements? Well, you don't need to, but what you need to know is that it's a perfect cube. There is only one other perfect cube in the entire Bible. Do you know what it is? The Holy of Holies. The place where God's presence was with his people. And in addition to that, we find that these terms... Or that this even temple is referred to something much grander, which fits the description of Ezekiel's temple and fits the description of what we read before it in Revelation 21, 22. And that is that it is, in fact, the new heavens and the new earth. God's new covenant people from among every nation, tribe, people and language would dwell in God's place. They would be in Christ, the church and ultimately the new heavens and the new earth. This was the anticipation of the prophets that God sent to bring new hope to his people. And then finally, not only does God reveal to us through the prophets his new people, his new place, but he reveals his, his perfect rule and blessing as mediated through this new king. The prophets anticipated a king. While they may not fully understood it all, they did. And much more, we find. Because while this king was foretold by the prophets found in the, the latter portion of the Old Testament, this was not a new concept. Go back and read Genesis 49. When Jacob passes the blessings to his sons, listen to this. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. 
He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he was washed. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This new king that the prophets speak of, would fulfill God's promise to David that his descendant would sit on the throne forever. You're familiar with this passage. We read most often at Christmas time, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government. And of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And we know that. Why? Because God is faithful. Not only would this new king we find as we read through the prophets... Not only would this new king fulfill the promise of this this new king spoken of, but he would also fulfill many other roles. He would fulfill that of this prophet. He would fulfill the role of priest and even shepherd. This new king would be the prophet that Moses spoke of, that God would raise up after him to deliver his people, the one that everyone was looking for. But in addition, he would also serve as the very mediator between God and man. Instead of a, a group of appointed men who continually fell with their own sinfulness, the priesthood. But once more, what's interesting is that he would not merely serve as the one who would make sacrifice on the behalf of the people, but he would what? Be the sacrifice himself. And God would no longer appoint sinful men to shepherd his people, but would instead shepherd them himself by means of his servant David. In Ezekiel 34... God addresses the shepherds of Israel. And he basically says, and this is the paraphrase of it, I'm done with you. You're not shepherding my people. You're looking out for yourself and no one else. My sheep are going hungry. They are scattered because of you. And so God says, I will shepherd my people. But then he says, he goes on and says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself would judge between the fat sheep And the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust it all the week with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant, David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd and I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant, David, shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And we can believe it. Why? Y'all don't catch on very quick. Because God is faithful. By means of this new king, God would ensure that his people would enjoy his rule and his blessing forever. And in case it wasn't clear, this new king is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The final epic of the Old Testament leaves God's people anticipating the fulfillment of his promises. But make no mistake, God continually revealed his purposes to his people. Yet they continually turned and rebelled again and again and again. 
God's fulfillment of his kingdom, however, changed everything. You see, while God's kingdom has not come in all its fullness, it has been inaugurated in the coming of God's king, Jesus Christ. The kingdom, Jesus said, is here. It's not finished, but it's here. And just as we sang earlier, it is ours to build that kingdom even now. We now live in that inaugurated kingdom with all its blessings. You see, in Christ, we experience the forgiveness of sin. We receive the promised Holy Spirit. And we dwell in God's place, the church. We have God's law written on our hearts and we seek to pursue his glory with great joy. In his kingdom, we are guaranteed to live with Christ as our king forever. Any and all who receive the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ by repenting of their sin and placing their faith in Christ are made citizens of this kingdom. And this kingdom has not yet been perfected. We can be the first to testify of that, can we not? Still a lot of problems because we're still sinful people. We await the consummation of God's promise. But we do so with great hope. And we do so with great anticipation, just as those who received the words of the prophets so many years ago. Will you pray with us?